the husband, the neurotypical husband in this case said, there were loads of laundry that we had to do to leave for the weekend. And she's rearranging our kitchen. Classic ADHD. Clutch <laughs> move for the ADHD person, because that's exactly what we do. Like I should be packing, I should be doing laundry, but gosh, I don't know where my strainer should go. I'm going to rearrange the kitchen. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Registration for the fall session of the ADHD Essentials Parenting Groups is open. But, due to some family stuff on my end, there have been some changes. The groups will still meet on Mondays and Wednesdays. However, they now begin on Monday, October 4th, and will end on Wednesday, November 24th. Only the 12 p.m. section is currently open for enrollment. Members will spend eight weeks gaining valuable skills and strategies to improve family connection and communication, as well as learn ways to better manage anxiety at home. Go to ADHDessentials.com groups for more details, including the themes for each of the eight weeks, and the best way to sign up. Or, if you're too impatient for that, email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com and let me know you're interested in registering. Also, if you're not listening to the other podcasts on the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network, you're missing out. I highly recommend all of them. ADHD Rewired, the flagship show with Eric Tivers, is interview-based and filled with phenomenal content from all across the ADHD spectrum. Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb focuses on specific strategies and ideas. ADHD Diversified with MJ is, of course, looking at ADHD from a more diverse lens. And the ADHD-friendly lifestyle with Moira Mabin focuses on women's issues as they relate to the disorder. And this episode of ADHD Essentials, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He does great work in support of this show. And if you want to support this show, a great way to do so is by providing a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. It helps others find the show through some kind of algorithm magic that I'm not entirely clear on. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to friend of the pod, Tamara Rozier. Tamara is an ADHD and leadership coach, founder of the ADHD Center of Western Michigan, and author of the new book, Your Brain's Not Broken, which released this week. In this episode, Tamara and I talk about her new book, Your Brain's Not Broken. We discuss managing the basic things of life, the interplay of anxiety and imagination, convergent versus divergent thinking, ADHD as an at-risk population, and ways to manage our emotions. All right, let's get rolling. 
Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm Tamara Rosier, and I'm an ADHD coach. I, I, I founded this the ADHD Center of West Michigan, and we have four coaches, a therapist, and a speech pathologist there. Our whole goal is to provide wraparound service for those who have ADHD. And you're also the author of Your Brain's Not Broken, which is good news because some of us with ADHD kind of feel like our brains are broken. And this book is helping us understand that, that it's not, right? And I, I love this book. I love this book enough that I'm an endorser and you can find my name on the back cover. But the more important name is Tamara's, which is on the front cover. And this book is like right up my alley, right? Like the podcast listeners are going to go, oh, that's why Brendan is endorsing this book. And that's why he likes it so much. This seems right in line with all the stuff he talks about on the show. The start of the book is about the complicated emotional landscape of ADHD, which is where I've kind of made my name with the wall of awful and all that stuff. Then you move into self-talk and how people with ADHD sort of experience time and the nature of our motivation, energy, and that kind of stuff. And then you circle back to managing those things. And, and of course, management strategies are in those other chapters and addressing those other topics as well in, in the moment, but also in the big picture. How do we navigate this stuff? As well as, and this is one of the ones that makes me the most excited because it's a thing, it's a thing that's sort of always on the periphery of what I'm aiming at, a topic in ADHD that I'm going to have to start aiming at soon. I just, my brain hasn't made that shift yet. And that's boundaries because boundaries are critical. And I know I don't make a big enough deal about them, but they're super huge in general as parents, as people with ADHD, it's such a big, they're such a big deal. And then you get into just practical areas to navigate ADHD and how to have emotionally healthy children with ADHD. It's a really comprehensive book. But the thing I love the most about it is that you can kind of open it up to any page and find something useful, which is the most ADHD-friendly thing I can say about a book. And this book is very ADHD-friendly, being written by an ADHD coach and, and a premier ADHD coach. You're your cream of the crop when it comes to doing ADHD work. So thanks. Yeah, no, I, I only speak the truth, right? This is, there are people who come on the show and I'm like, yeah, of course they're coming on the show. Like, of course they're good. I'm only going to invite people onto this show who are good. And then there's people who every time I get to have them on the show, like I'm excited and it's an honor for me. And you're on that list. You're on that, like, that top tier people. That is so kind. Uh, yeah, like it's true though, right? Like this is this is the second time you've been on. The only reason I haven't had you on more than that is because I assume you're busy. Um, <laughs> I try not to be a pest, but I I just can't say enough good things about this book, both in terms of content and also in terms of how it's presented. I think it's really valuable to have an ADHD book that doesn't feel overwhelming to read. That feels like I can kind of flip this open anywhere and get something useful out of it. Even if I don't have the broader context of that idea, because I didn't read the whole chapter, I still get the idea and understand it. And maybe that leads me to reading that whole chapter and getting that broader context. So I want to just start off with unrelenting praise, and then I'll prove myself as a hyperbolic speaker by relenting on the praise and letting you say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a couple things. Uh, it's funny. You and I were talking earlier about the proposal, putting in book proposals. It's amazing what's happened to me as an author throughout this process, because first I started writing like a scholarly voice, like here's this and kind of a little bit distance 
that would go with my academic training. And the acquisition center is like, oh, honey, no, 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 we don't do that. I am really grateful. I actually talked to a writing coach to like, hey, squeeze this academic voice out of me. I need to get back to my human voice. And so I'm delighted that you found it readable because I tell a lot of stories in it. Unfortunately, my whole family can find themselves masked as clients throughout there and they know it. They're somewhat cool with it. Um, So the whole reason I wrote this is so many of my clients were in pain and they were in pain because they can't do the basic grown-up stuff of life. And I would say your brain's not broken. We just have to find an ADHD-friendly way of doing this. It's almost like a little love letter to everyone. You're okay. We just have to figure out a different way. Jessica McCabe was on not that long ago. We ended up talking about her strengths, and, and that's, I know, part of your jam. And I was, we were sort of talking about them, and I was noting that her strengths are all like the kinds of strengths that change the world, right? Yeah. But we had also talked about how she can't like clean her car, right? Like that basic sort of adulting stuff and how our brains tell us like, you can't change the world. You can't keep your car clean. Right. And like, that's exactly the equation we make. Yes. Yeah. And that's nonsense, right? Cause Jessica has changed the world already, regardless of what her car looks like. That's kind of ADHD. ADHD is like, no, you're the movers and shakers. Oh, ADHD folks. It's okay that your car is messy. Yeah. Your brain's not broken. Okay, so I'm a pragmatist at heart. I'm a Gen Xer pragmatist. So you're going to hear this come out, right? No millennial, like, fun speak. I'm going to go, ADHD is hard as heck. And we're maladapted for the modern world. We can be shakers and movers, but it's the modern things in life that drag us down. Like, you know, calendaring, basic calendaring skills. You would think I was splitting an atom when I tried to work my calendar. And that does, it, it leaks into my being and go, how, who, what makes you think you could write a book? You can't even keep a calendar. ADHD is not a gift because I would want to return that gift as soon as possible. There's so many downsides to it, at least if, for those of us living in a modern world. Put me on the Sahara, I'm a survivor. I'll figure it out, all the MacGyver stuff, right? <laughs> By the way, I'm pretty sure MacGyver had ADHD. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So we're all like little MacGyvers just waiting to MacGyver something. Right. We're just waiting for that problem to come up. I can do it. Yes. So one one of the pieces of this book, and it's, it's kind of deep in, but you talk about dancing through the minefield. And I, I loved this piece of the book, not just because it's got like easy to read, bolded sections for each of the numbered elements of dancing through the minefield, but also because the ideas and concepts are great. And I'm just, I'm just going to read the bolded parts as sort of a, a place to grab onto and start talking about things. And also so that the audience can get an idea of some of the concepts in the book. So when it comes to dancing through the minefield, we want to watch out for these common rabbit holes in our divergent thinking. One is using only divergent thinking. Two is being interested only in the big challenges, right? So that's changing the world, but not cleaning our car. And then being in love with your divergent thinking. So kind of getting too wrapped up in our ADHD to some degree, getting fixated on our potential as opposed to, you know, our application of that potential. And then the combination of imagination and anxiety, which, wow, that one was like, 
oh, uh, that that feels a little too real and close to home for me and for my whole family, potentially. And I'm going to read that whole section. Our wonderfully vivid imaginations combined with our anxiety and fears to create monsters, cognitive distortions that torture us. We let the monsters that we create take over our rational thoughts because every single client that I have ever seen has identified this trap. So I definitely want to play with that later on. But then also another trap we can fall in is having no patience for non-divergent activities, including like relationships with non-divergent people is in there too, right? 100% my friend. And then creating Rube Goldberg machines, which is really just overcomplicating tasks because that keeps us engaged, but it's not effective. Getting stuck in problem finding and then not monitoring our divergent patterns. Like that's the ADHD challenges in, in a nutshell. And to some degree, this is sort of tricky, right? Because there is a movement out there to like embrace your neurodivergentness and to not try to fit in and not mask and that the rest of the world should be accommodating to the neurodivergent. And I'm with you. Like, I agree with that, but also it's not realistic. Like, it's just not where we are. Let me back up just a quick second. So in the book I talk about, and you were kind of, this is right before uh, what you just read. I talk about the difference between convergent thinking and divergent thinking. And convergent thinking is kind of deducing. It's the Sherlock Holmes method of this, this, this equals this coming up with one right answer. Most of the world wants us to do that thinking. But then you and I and your ADHD listeners were fantastic at the divergent thinking. And divergent thinking is like a constellation. Like we don't just have one idea. We have a constellation of ideas at all times. And we can follow different trails to get there. So it's not whether we have to conform to the world. I think it's it's more about when to use our divergent gift and when to use when to snap into convergent. And there's times I coach my clients and well myself even to go, okay, this is a convergent activity. Just do convergence for 10 minutes. Because I think what ADHD people try to do is we try to get out of doing the convergent work. So there are times when we do have to put on our our grown-up pants and do the convergence. And, and I'm just talking 10 minutes of convergence and, you know, not like hours and hours, but because that's what our brain, and our brains are capable, especially medicated, by the way, um, of doing <laughs> this thinking. I was just talking to a client of mine who got hit, like COVID kind of hit her hard, including job loss um, and trying to kind of put herself back together. So we've been doing that. One of, the, one of the things we've been focusing on is rebuilding her trust in herself, which is a pretty big challenge for ADHD folks. We often, like you fail enough and you just don't trust yourself anymore. So in terms of finding a, helping her find a job, paradoxically, a lot of what we're doing is at-home stuff because if she can clean a room, do the dishes, like make sure her fiance has whatever he needs to have and that kind of stuff, then- she's rebuilding that trust and it's easier to transition that trust over to a job search in a professional setting if it exists at home. And we just got to more of a convergent 
thought process with her where I was like, all right, it's time to revisit the to-do list. It's time to really start applying your to-do list. So in the morning when you have coffee, sit down and go over your to-do list for the day. And then, and this is the critical part, find times throughout the day to look at your to-do list again. Because what she'll do is she'll look at her to-do list and say, I have to do this stuff. And then if she gets derailed at 1030, it's over for the rest of the day because she doesn't have any automaticity around when to look at her to-do list later on. So she doesn't. So she stays derailed. So we came up with look at it at lunch and then again at the end of the day and also look at it when you're feeding the cats because her cats will bother her to get fed and that's a, that'll hopefully become a prompt. And that's the convergent thinking, right? That's like her divergent thinking. If she gets interrupted at 1030, she's going to send her all over the place and she's going to spiral and not water the plants, not look for a job, not go to the gym. But if we can every now and then converge on this list and be reminded of what we're supposed to be doing and get that focus, then we will go to the gym. We will feed the cats. We will water the plants. We will look for a job. Yeah. And like a convergent task we find the most boring because they're not fun. They're not emotionally interesting. And so we don't know what to do with them because it's so simple. In the book, I write about a woman who, one of my clients who was trying to clean, she was wanting to unload the dishwasher and she calls her husband and says, Hey, I need the account password to Netflix. The kids changed it. I want to watch Netflix while I unload the dishwasher. Now, remember, you and I know the dishwasher is about a five-minute activity. Yep. Okay, she was starting to Rube Goldberg this thing, right? She was starting to create a complicated machine for a simple task. And then her husband comes home. Everything is out of all the cabinets on top of the counter. And she's like, well, instead of just putting it away, I decided to reorganize. And you see how her divergent thinking got out of control. Because she has a strainer. She's like, where does a strainer go? You know what? I should put it here, but that means here. And so she started to reorganize everything. And her husband, who is neurotypical, they were together in a session. And he's like, help me understand what I'm seeing here. (laughs) Because she looks crazy to me. And and so I could explain, like her, her cognitive error was keeping the dishwasher a really boring convergent task. She wanted to make it much more interesting. And I can even see like Netflix playing a role in that, right? And I don't know that that's what happened, but I could see like, all right, so I turn on a movie to reload the dishwasher and the dishwasher is done in five minutes, but the movie is still going and I'm in the kitchen and I feel like I'm supposed to be doing something productive while this movie's on. So what's going to take an hour and a half to do? I'll rearrange the dishes because that's a big project. Then I can watch this movie. Yes. And it gives us this false impression of productivity because we're not doing what needs to be done. We're doing what it feels that we want to have done. And the husband, the neurotypical husband in this case said, there were loads of laundry that we had to do to leave for the weekend. And she's rearranging our kitchen. Classic ADHD. (laughs) Clutch move for the ADHD person because that's exactly what we do. Like I should be packing, I should be doing laundry, but gosh, I don't know where my strainer should go. I'm going to rearrange the kitchen. Yeah. And going into that idea of imagination and anxiety and all that stuff, right? I might be anxious about packing because that's hard and I always forget something, or I might be anxious about where we're going to potentially, right? Like maybe I don't want to visit my in-laws or go bungee jumping, which is the plan or something. 
And so as a result, that packing makes me anxious. So I'm avoiding that task. And I wind up rearranging my entire kitchen as sort of a procrastination strategy that I don't even necessarily realize I'm doing. Exactly. it. We're adorable. (laughs) In the most frustrating way. (laughs) Yes. But But then people get mad at themselves to try to go, oh, I'm such an idiot. And the woman sat in my office and she was in tears. She goes, I know that was a stupid thing to do. And her neurotypical husband, who's a really nice guy, but said, yeah, it is a stupid thing to do. And that's where I broke in. And I'm like, hold up, hold up. Your, na- your brain's not broken. You just got sidetracked for a second. You forgot to manage divergent and do the convergent. So I talk about it's like a gas pedal and a brake pedal. And we want to sometimes try to push both at the same time, which I guess if you're a hot rodder, that's a cool sound and everything, but that doesn't really work. So we really want to like know like the gas is our divergent thinking. The convergent thinking is like putting on the brakes. We just have to learn how to work the pedals. And sticking with anxiety, right? Like I know for me personally, for a a number of my clients, anxiety helps me be convergent, right? Like I focus better when I'm powered by anxiety Yeah, because I just have to do the next thing. So I'm less likely to wander off. But that burns you out. That's not a healthy strategy either. No. uh, In the book, I talk about, you know, the six bad strategies that we use. And anxiety is one of them. We use it like gasoline to wake ourselves up in the morning. I mean, I used to scare myself out of bed every morning. When I was an academic dean, every morning, I'd just scare myself out of bed going, Tamara, you're already behind. And I would just start the whole day, like all like pumped up. I wasn't at my healthiest. You know that. I mean, that's easy to see. <laughs> yep. But I tried to manage everything with my anxiety. Uh, my anxiety actually did increase my convergent thinking. People think, you know, I, I worked with a client last week that said, well, you know, he uses hyperfocus. And I actually gently said, no, he uses anxiety. That's different than hyperfocus. Hyperfocus is that trance-like state we get in. Anxiety is scaring yourself out of bed in the morning. That's tricky, right? Because a lot of people will use hyperfocus to mean anxiety and talk about how like, well, hyperfocus is risky because if you try to use hyperfocus to get something done quickly, then you're going to be burned out later. And that's because you're, you're really using anxiety. And, and maybe the argument can be made that you're using anxiety to get into hyperfocus. That might be there. But it's not hyperfocus in the truest sense because really hyperfocus is flow. Hyperfocus is really just a flow state. And there's nothing bad about a flow state. You know, it's an intense trance-like flow state. And anxiety, anxiety doesn't really lead to hyperfocus. I have a man who uh, your listeners won't be able to see me make this face, but his family used to joke and tease him before he was diagnosed. He'd sit hunched over his keyboard and make this smiling, grimacing face while he was working. And it's a horrible thing. And his family thought it was hilarious. But you know what he's doing? He was like using a little bit of self-loathing, a little bit of anxiety to send this freaking email. <laughs> White knuckling. Right? And so that he's trying to motivate his brain. And it, it's, it's exhausting. And, and that's why when people go straight to ADHD is a gift, I, I really go, oh, hold up, hold up. We've got to get through some basics before we can even realize the power of our divergent thinking. 
Now, once we get through those, we look like freaking geniuses, my friends. And it's not easy. It's, I agree. It's not a gift at all. It's a double-edged sword of nothing else. If it were a gift, we'd see more people with ADHD succeeding. Uh, one of the burdens, and I spoke about this at the last um, international conference on ADHD, one of my burdens for our people is that research shows whatever neurotypicals have more of, we have less of. More money, happy marriages, health in general, blah, blah, blah. Academic achievement, whatever. And then the converse is true. So whatever um, neurotypical people have less of, we have more of. Heart disease, diabetes, unhappy marriages, you know, all this depression, anxiety, you name it. It's a word at risk population, which is why I get a little bit nervous when people are like, it's a gift, fly your freak flag. Like, no, it puts us at risk. We have to manage it properly before we can get into strengths. And flying your freak flag is a good strategy because I like to say that shame dies in the light. Yep. The more we can be open about our challenges, I don't care if it's ADHD or depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or bipolar disorder, the more we can make it safe for people who are having mental health challenges to be open about those challenges, the easier it becomes for them to manage those mental health challenges because we eliminate the shame. But as long as it remains unsafe to talk about these things which in the wider population it largely is, the more that shame festers and gets to undermine any progress that neurodiverse folks might make, um, which is one of the reasons why this book is great. Even the title, Your Brain's Not Broken, like that's addressing the shame that hides inside ADHD and trying to smooth it over. So in the introduction of the book, I make a confession. And I hate that I made this confession, but it's all the times I tried to pretend to be normal and tried to hide my ADHD. And all the times it hurt when people would point out my ADHD in a mocking way. Like, don't give that to Tamara, she has ADHD. Or even things like someone saying, why are you tired all the time? And what I really can't say in that moment or haven't said in that moment is, because I have ADHD and this machine takes a lot to run (laughs) and I'm exhausted easily because I'm doing such hard work in my brain. Like all those little things kind of chip away at us. And so in the forward, I just kind of confessed all that. Like, I get it, guys. I'm starting to come into the light too. You know, I was really vulnerable in that forward. And I don't like being vulnerable. You know me well enough. I don't like being vulnerable. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, but I think it's a healthy thing for me to do because I, I wanted to really bring it to light and go, I struggle. I don't like being vulnerable either. But I do workshops and people compliment me on being vulnerable. And I'm like, when? When did that happen? I don't remember being vulnerable. I share. (laughs) Well, but it's funny, right? Because I'll I'll share a ton of really personal stuff about ways I've struggled and things have been hard and all this stuff. But it doesn't feel vulnerable, right? Because I don't know if it's because I've come to terms with it or because I have some of this stuff canned in a way that like I've talked that I've told that story enough that it doesn't feel vulnerable anymore. But Like you're kind of in a similar boat where I've spent enough time with you. I've seen you be vulnerable. I've heard you talk about stuff that I'm like, well, how is she saying that? But probably you didn't feel vulnerable at the time because similar reasons that I have. And so 
I just I kind of want to just highlight that as a as a reflection on what you just said that maybe is helpful. It might be that there's areas where you're being vulnerable and it's serving others, even if you don't feel vulnerable yourself. I, I'm just going to be really honest. When I started writing this book, I wanted to write it not as a fellow journey person, but just as a hey clients, here's what I hope you would know. And what it ended up with is I wrote a lot about myself and my own struggles and. There's one thing I uh, I got the proofs back from the editors. I was reading through them like, oh, crap, I wrote about that? <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you what it is, because it's that, that stupid, okay? Um, I was talking about emotions and where our emotions are like a light switch and we go from zero to 10 immediately. I said, you know, like on a hot summer day, I get in my car, immediately I'm angry because I'm hot. And a neurotypical listening would go, well, what did you expect to be? It's a hot summer day. You got into a closed car. Like, of course, that's expected. But immediately my ADHD brain signals emotions about it. I don't like to feel hot. And why is it so hot? And, and I go global, like stupid global warming. You know, it's, I get so wound up. And I read that in the book. I'm like, oh my gosh, people are really going to think I'm an idiot. But that is so true of me. I get mad at the littlest things in my life like an ADHD person would. And then something big happens and you're probably more chill about it than people expect you to be because absolutely, there's more dopamine in that crisis moment. So you're able to manage your emotions more effectively, or you're afraid that if you don't manage your emotions in this moment, it, things are going to go really bad. Like it's safe to be aggravated in your car by yourself because it's hot. It's much more risky to be aggravated with your spouse or your kid because something went haywire. So it's almost like the hot car is a release valve for the bigger moments when you need to keep it in check. It really is. And it's funny though. I mean, if, you know, ADHD brains don't know major threats from minor irritations. And there's times I have to go, Tamara, this hot car, it's a minor irritation. I'm like, it feels bigger than that. Minor, minor. Like with my clients, I use the big bucket, small bucket. Is this a big bucket deal or a small bucket deal? Which bucket do we put it in? And I know it's a small bucket deal, but when that those beads of sweat form on my chin, I'm like, it's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote about that and it's embarrassing. I'm just going to be honest. It's embarrassing. And I'm hoping like, you know, I'm confessing it here. Maybe I'll kind of build up a callus to it, but I kind of admitted a lot of stupid, embarrassing things throughout the book. I'll embarrass myself along with you um, and I'll share in your vulnerability. A little to the side of that, though, the big bucket, small bucket thing sent me in this direction. Like a lot of parents, managing our kids' anxiety during COVID is a bit of a challenge. An area that I keep messing up at, and it's driving me nuts because I'm really good at it. I'm really good at it with my clients, but not so much with my kids, which is a disconnect that happens sometimes for, for we mental health folks, is my kids have an emotional response to something. And I am immediately reading it as a big bucket because it's a large demonstration of emotions. But as we sort of are navigating this anxiety stuff that every kid is experiencing through COVID, I'm learning that it's not uncommon that I'm responding to what is for them a small bucket thing as though it's a large bucket thing because I'm, I, I'm accurately perceiving their emotional response. But what I'm not doing is checking. I'm not saying, is this a big bucket thing or a small bucket thing? On a scale of one to 10, where is this landing? Because it looks like a 10, 
but is it actually a three? And there's been a lot of things that, especially one of my kids has been like, nah, that's a three. And once I find that out, I'm like, oh, well then maybe you're just doing this anyway. Like there's stuff that I've kind of let slide because I'm thinking it's a huge deal. And I'm like, all right, well, you don't have to do it right now, but you're still going to have to do it. So like de-escalate, get yourselves under control. And then we're doing this later on or tomorrow or whatever. And I think I've been letting, especially one of my kids off the hook at times when I shouldn't have, because I didn't check in on what's the accurate score of this in terms of anxiety. It looks big, but is it big? Just to jump on the bandwagon of stuff that we feel like we're doing wrong. I figured I'd throw that out there. Well, you know, with our kids, we have such a blind spot with our kids because biology is working. We're biologically programmed to die for these beings. And so when you have ADHD and a very twitchy amygdala, you're like, of course I will die for you. And they're like, no, 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 dad, I'm not asking you to do that. You're like, no, too late. (laughs) But I want to now. (laughs) And now I have the dopamine surge to die for you. So yeah. My own children are peppered through the book and it's kind of a game that they've kind of made fun of like, Hey, let's, let's see. I'm going to underline all the places. I think I see myself. I think she's really writing about me. And it's kind of funny because my children actually help my whole family help me write the book by giving me so much material to use. So when it comes to this book, I'm going to give you a sort of a two piece question. You can answer both of these pieces or pick one or the other. I don't care which. What was the most fun or engaging piece of this book? Sort of what's your favorite piece, I guess? And what do you think is the most important piece? My favorite chapter to write. I don't think it's the most important piece for everyone. My favorite chapter was the monsters we make. And I have to tell you, while I was writing this book, I just felt like examples were just given to me on a daily basis. One time this girl walks, this very young girl and her mom are in my office and the mom's like, look, she's not showering by herself. She's having potty accidents again. She won't go into a room by herself. We need to do something. And um, she, at that point, she was just diagnosed with ADHD, not medicated. And is this during COVID or before COVID? Right before COVID. Okay. But she's so, so smart. And this is a very, very smart young lady, even though she was like five or four. Now, remember, whenever you're working with ADHD kids, you subtract three years for their social emotional development. So I looked at her. And so she's a high IQ kid, but low social emotional development so far. And I looked at her. I said, so what's going on? And she looked at me, big brown eyes. And she just said, monsters. I'm like, monsters? You have a monster problem? I've had a monster problem. I'm like, oh, we can work with this. So I had to play it really well, uh, where her mom, I knew she would be listening. I'm like, oh, your daughter has a monster problem. A lot of us have had monster problems. I'd like to give you a recipe to get rid of these monsters. And you could tell the little girl was just focusing and listening and just staring at me. And I'm like, it's okay. I've had these too. So I directed the mom to make peppermint oil spray for the girl to spray in her room. And I explained that we can't kill the monsters, but we just keep them away. And so, you know, she really liked this. And I turned to her, I said, now, listen, your brothers, they might have a monster problem too. So could you help them and spray the room for them too? Mom was really cool, went along with everything. I get a, a message the next day saying she took a shower by herself. 
she's kind of working through life again. Nice. And then that was how I started that chapter. And then I went through how we make monsters out of things. It's more complicated than using peppermint oil spray to get rid of them, but we can still figure out how to get rid of our monsters. So that was my most fun. I think the most important piece of the whole book is really your brain isn't broken and we really have to take seriously the emotional impact and the landscape that we live in. If we're going to really address this ADHD issue, we've got to pay attention to the emotions. And just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? I really want ADHD people to know that their brain isn't broken and there's so much hope for them. And yet it's not just about flying a flag saying, yay, I'm ADHD. It's really about how do I manage my emotions so that I can live an emotionally healthier life. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.